I honestly believe uh, that uh, most of our questions in life or most of our issues in life revolve around the answer to four questions. I mean, really, I, over the years, sort of, and those four are, one, is there a God? I mean, you, you know, you got to settle that one way or the other. We, we've discussed that and looked at that to some extent. Is there a God, you know, establish that or whatever. Second, uh, then, what is this God like? Uh, what can we understand about the nature or the character of God? I've always been, and we'll touch this a little bit today, but I've always been uh, intrigued uh, by the fact that the very first sin that ever occurred in the Garden of Eden was because the devil brought into question the character of God. He brought the question, does God really not want you to do this? You know, he, he knows you'll be like him, which is interesting. We'll look at that here in just a minute. But it's a question as to whether this God's holding out on you. And all, in my judgment, sin often revolves around a question as to whether or not God really has your best interest at heart or whether God can really be trusted or not or whether I can go against my own inclinations here because God is genuinely and supremely good. I think all sin tracks right back to that question about the character of God. So we looked at that, gave you four ideas. If you were interested, want to listen, we, we record these. So if you're interested in that. And then the third question we're on now today is this idea of questions that matter. Questions that matter is this. This is the question. What does God expect from me? The fourth question, if you're interested, you want to write it down. The fourth question we'll get to in a few weeks, I think. I mean, I hope, I mean, we're going to get to it. I just don't know how long, you know, (laughs) who knows? Uh, The fourth question really is finally, and I think this has a great deal to do with life and disappointment or uh, trust. And that's this, what can I expect from God? What can I really expect from him? Uh, You know, I know there are people whose, whose life and their faith has burned to the ground because they had some expectation of God that did not occur, whether or not it was legitimate or not, we want to look at some of those issues. But I know plenty of people, and you probably do too, whose, whose faith has just literally burned to the ground uh, because they just said, hey, somebody told me this is what God was like. It didn't happen. I'm out. So that fourth question, what can I uh, legitimately or what can I expect uh, from this God? It seems to me to be it. So we're in this third one. We're in this third one now today. What, what does God expect of me? Uh, what, what does he expect of me or from me? Now, this idea of expectation from God, I just want to kind of walk around this just a little bit. Um, I know for some people, uh, the idea that I would even raise this issue that God expects anything from us sounds like a works righteousness kind of uh, approach to Christianity, right? You, you know, you've heard, heard this kind of idea that, that God doesn't expect anything from us. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a works righteousness thing. You know, I'm always, I'm, I'm always interested each semester. Uh, I, I, I get my classes going and I give them a syllabus and I tell them, this is my contract with you. This is what I expect from you. Not going not gonna to throw anything in there, generally. <laughs> not going to add anything, generally. <laughs> but I say, this is, this is my document of my expectation of what I expect from you throughout the semester in terms of work, in terms of responsibilities. And so the idea that God expects something from us, sometimes in some people's minds at least, it's a little discombobulating. Like, wait a minute, I thought this was all what? Grace. I thought this was all God's grace. Uh, and, and I want to suggest a couple of things here uh, that, uh, that might help here, and that it's on your handout here, uh, is this, is that grace, in my judgment, the provision of grace seeks participation. Provision seeks participation. This is not saying that the Christian life is just somehow some indifferent, uh, uh, no response, no participation on my part. Um, for instance, <clears throat> uh, uh, the idea, I, you know, I, I had uh, at one point, uh, my dad, when I was in college, uh, wrecked my car earlier. Uh, in uh, my college career, and uh, he actually ran into there. Everybody's dead now, so the statute of limitations is over. Okay, <clears throat> my dad, my dad wrecked my car by kind of cutting a corner. At least that was the allegation. 
he hit a guy in Clark County, where I grew up in, in Kentucky, who was the richest tobacco farmer in the state. <laughs> so we lost. <laughs> um, uh, and there was some contention there about uh, whose fault it was. My dad was convinced he was an expert driver and uh, could never make a mistake. Uh, just ask him. And uh, so anyway, this guy hit my dad and uh, uh, tore my car up. It was a little Carmen Ghia Volkswagen. Little, nice little, nice, isn't that sad? It is. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I agree, I agree. It was a sort of a chick magnet a little bit, you know. <laughs> Because I needed all the help I could get. <laughs> you know, I needed them to think it was a cool car. It was a cool car. And my dad just smoked it uh, on that road. And I remember, uh, you know, of course, it caused some problems. I had to buy another car. And I was in college a couple years later going to school. And my dad calls me up. And he said um, the guy's name uh, had not died yet. And uh, said uh, he came into my office the other day. Now, this was a very powerful man. Uh, the richest tobacco farmer in, I think, maybe in the state, uh, and uh, certainly in our area, in Central Kentucky. And um, I walked to my dad's office a little sheepishly and just said, uh, "You know that boy of yours?" And my dad is going, "Which one?" <laughs> you know, I got two of them. It could be either. He said, "You know that boy of yours? I know he's in a college, and uh, I've been thinking about this. And I, you know, I don't know if he was admitting guilt or not. I, I'm not wasn't there." But he said, you know, boy, you're in college. I know he's away in Houston, and he could probably use some help. And he dropped like four or five $100 bills on my dad's desk. My dad took his part, and then <laughs> that's the way my dad was. Finder's fee. You know, it's just the way he was, you know. Uh, so, so my dad calls me up in Houston, and I'm working like crazy. i got two jobs. I'm working, and, and my dad tells me about this a gentleman who'd come in, and dropped those $100 bills on his, on his desk and said, now I'm going to put those in your bank account and uh, they'll be there for you. Now, you know what? That's a provision that required later my what? Participation. I had to draw on it, right? I had to draw on it. I mean, it was in, my, it was in the bank. It was there. It, I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't get it. I didn't make it. It was a provision that had been made for me. But there was, in one sense then, my participation that had to, had to participate in order for that to make account for me. I think that's the idea here I want to get at, is that what does God expect of me based on the provision that he's made? Adequate, complete, full, nothing that I add to it, nothing I contribute to it. But there is, in fact, if you will, a matter of participation that I have to have with respect to the provision. And related to that as well is this. Dallas Willard made this famous statement some years ago, and I think it really needs some attention at times in our lives. He says this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Those are, those are important distinctions. The, the idea of the Christian life being me just some passive uh, passive person or passive here and just let everything happen or not happen and whatever happens is God's will seems to be contrary, if you will, in my judgment, uh, to what the New Testament uh, teaches about that. That grace is not, if you will, opposed to earning, or, or, is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And so I want to I work through this here a little bit about this idea that God has made a provision of salvation for us. God has provided everything that we need, the scripture says, for life and godliness, but let me, let me show you that real quick. Just here's this idea of provision, now participation. Go to your table of contents of your Bible and find a second Peter. I'm sorry, first Peter. First Peter 11.63. Go to first Peter. To me, I, I just want to touch on this because I think sometimes our, um, our thinking is not, uh, I'm sorry, second Peter. What am I thinking? I've been on drugs this week. By the way, I got sick and then I gave it to Becky. We're just, I'm just a sharing kind person, aren't I? Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, in 2 Peter chapter 1, just go over one book. This is this idea of provision and participation. Notice here what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
to the true knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you become participants or partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world. Now for this reason, just lay down. What does he say there? Now, for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, notice that list there. What does he say? He supplied you with everything you need for life and godliness. Wonderful promises to escape, the, uh, to be a participant of the divine nature. So now just forget it. Relax. No. With all diligence now, add. Notice there. Now with all diligence, add or apply this to your faith. So this is this kind of tension that we feel. We've used the word before called a dialectic. I don't want to put you in a cold sweat here again, but <laughs> we've used the word dialectic here that this is the idea that God has provided, if you will, for us provision. And there is also now our participation, participation. We, t we tend in some chances, we get on one side or the other of this thing. Sometimes we'll get to the point that it's all about God's provision. It's all about God's provision, and we forget to participate. Or we think it's all on us. It's all our participation, when in fact it is provision that seeks participation. So that's what we're going to look at today. So what is it that God expects of you or requires you? Here, I'm going to ask you to do something today, a little bit different. Here's, here's, my, here's what I want you to do. Uh, I'd like for you to talk among yourselves there just for a minute. Uh, you know, and I can walk around the room if some of y'all aren't talking. Okay, I see you. I see some of those backbenchers back there. I know who they are. I know who the backbenchers are. Uh, here's the question I want you to talk about. Just for, Briefly, just a minute. Talk about a person who believes something about you that you finally then began to believe. In other words, they saw something in you. They knew something about you you weren't exactly sure about. And they brought it out of you. That, that you came to believe it. Or something that you've come to believe about life that's true based on your experience or your time on this earth. Okay, you understand what I'm asking you to do? Talk among yourself. Somebody, could have been a teacher, could have been a coach, could have been a friend, that, that saw something in you that you finally began to accept, say, that, that is true about me. That, that is true. Okay? Talk among yourselves. Thank you. <clears throat> you know, everybody's got some story about this. It's amazing. I, you know, I was reflecting on this thinking, have any, how have I helped <clears throat> students to kind of understand how God's wired them? Have I been able to do that? And, and, and that's a great opportunity uh, teachers have. But this idea of helping people to sort of pull out of them what's in them, help them to embrace it. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Because I think that one of the things that we want to think about, in other words, of sometimes we need time or we need God to help us or other people, is what does God really require of me? And I think over time and other people, this might be it. So I'm going to give it to you right here. Here we go. Embrace your creaturely status. I want to talk about this a little bit. That the thing that God expects of you and me, that we may not know inside of us, that sometimes we resist, sometimes we think it's not true, is that God wants us to embrace our creaturely, or embrace your creaturely status. Now, there are a lot of, a lot of pieces to this we're going to get on to. But I, I want to say, as I've meditated over this and prayed over this and thought about this over time, I thought, what is it that God fundamentally expects from me. Not a bunch of details. We'll get into some of the details of how this fleshes out. But what is it that God expects of me or requires of me in my life? It seems to me that he wants me to give up trying to be God. He wants me to give up trying to be God. Every one of us have struggled at time to say, to give over control of our life, to say, you lead me, you guide me. It's because this creaturely status thing is something that from the very beginning we got afflicted with. 
Go to your Bibles, if you will, just for a second uh, there. Go to the very beginning to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In my Bible, it's page 1. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. In Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> as I've kind of thought about this, I thought, <clears throat> here's what was going on, or here's what's happening to Adam and Eve, our original parents. <laughs> that the devil comes to the woman... And again, I told you, he begins to call into question God's character. God, God doesn't want you to be as smart. God doesn't want you to know all this. And it's interesting to me that the original sin, the original, if you will, refusal to accept our creaturely status, the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die if you eat this. Watch this in verse 5. I'm sorry, it's chapter 3. I'm in. Chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows verse 5, that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Think about that for a second. What, what, what do you mean? When you eat this, you're going to be like God. Aren't they already like God? <laughs> the Bible says in chapter 2, Let us create Adam in our image, male and female. He created them in Salem. That's the word for image. That he created every cre human in the image of their like God already. Isn't that interesting? He says, you know, if you'll eat this, you'll be like God. What, what is it in their head that doesn't understand that? They were already like God. Salem means likeness or similarity. Uh, it's the, in, in modern Hebrew, it's the word for picture. It's a picture. It, it's the idea. You're, you're, you're similar. He, so he starts out with this look. You want to be like God? They're already like God. There's something here about their lack of, uh, if you will, con contentment about this. And then he says, and you'll know the good from evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer comments on this. I think he's right in his book on ethics when he said this. What the devil was saying to them was, you can now make decisions independent of God if you eat this. Because what? Before they eat it, how do they know what's right and wrong? God tells them, right? They're living in dependence on him. They don't, they don't need to know right from wrong. They say, okay, what'd you say to do? Well, that, that's right. What's wrong? What I tell you not to do. Bonhoeffer says that what they're trying to do or what's occurring here is this independent kind of living to say, I don't have to live in dependence on God anymore. I'll know the difference between good and evil. Meg? In dictionary.com, it brings up um, a quote from the Catholic Church that says, It is a creaturely, not self asserting strength hmm. Creaturely dependence on God. I think that's right. <clears throat> I wish I'd looked that up. Makes me look stupid now. <clears throat> Thanks, Meg. I thought from your Lutheran background, you're going to talk about Bonhoeffer there for a second. <clears throat> that's why I called on you. I didn't call on you to embarrass me. I called on you to talk about Bonhoeffer. I know. <clears throat> right, but yeah, creaturely mean dependence. Listen, this is where the struggle is, isn't it? To depend on God. To rely on it, especially when it's not what I want to do. <laughs> it's fine to rely on God when he, He's telling me something I want to do. The challenge is for me to embrace my creaturely status. Now, there's all kinds of issues here. We're going to have some time. We're not going to finish this all today. But I would suggest to you that for people like me and maybe like you, that where this begins to manifest itself <clears throat> most obviously is in the absolute demand and attempt for control. I'm going to control the people. I'm going to control my feelings. I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to control life because I am not going to live in dependence. I'm going to stay in control. And it's afflicting all of us all the time. We want to control instead of depend. So, so this idea, they already are like God. They, they're, they're dissatisfied. They, they, they will now know the good from evil. They don't have to depend on God anymore. So, so the whole story of the human race is our refusal to embrace our creaturely status and to say, I am dependent. I do require dependence on God. I don't know enough to know how I might act or live or be. This seems to be, again, so as I've, as I've worked on this, I want to talk about, so 
Here's the question. How does one embrace creaturely status? <clears throat> how does one embrace it? So just a series of questions today, I thought, as, I, as I'd worked this. So how do you go about um, embracing creaturely status? Where I'm saying, I'm going to live a life now of dependence on God. Now, there's a lot of things operating here, but let me, let me begin with this on this first hand on your handout. The place of repentance. Um, <clears throat> the place of repentance. I, I didn't want to start here. I wanted to start somewhere else, but as I continue to work and study, uh, I, um, I thought I, I need to start where Jesus starts. And so if you have your Bibles, open them there in the table of contents. Go to the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. <clears throat> just going to read a couple of verses here to say, let, let's, let's start here. That in chapter 1 of, of Mark, after John, verse 14, had been taken into custody, after John had been taken, got, got, got to put in prison, Jesus comes preaching the gospel, saying, here it is, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom, or the rule of God, that's what the word kingdom means, the rule of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, this is a, this is a word or, or a thought that I don't hear a lot about. I was talking to Andy Rushkop, though, uh, this morning. We were talking. He said he taught this on Tuesday night uh, to the young adults. And so I said, give me your notes and I'll do it. No. <laughs> but this idea, this is Jesus' first sermon. And he's come to the world to... Bring the gospel, the good news. And how does he say it begins? He says, by the sequence here of repent and believe the gospel. He doesn't believe the gospel and then repent. Now, obviously, if one's going to repent, they have to believe that what they're doing is right. But this notion of repentance and the sequence seems to me to be important. That in other words, if I'm saying I'm going to repent, meaning, and we'll talk about what it means, of my, my tendency to not accept my creaturely status. I'm going, to, I'm going to change my mind. So I, I want to look at this first, though, real quick, real quick. It looks like that this, uh, the place of repentance, it's a consistent message. I'm going to give you a bunch of information here, and I'm going to blow through it. Um, the message of repentance. <clears throat> what does God expect of me? It was John the Baptist message. Mark 1, 4, Matthew 3, 1 to 2. If you want these references, or we're recordings. But, so it was John the Baptist's message. <clears throat> Mark 1, 4, Matthew 3, 3, 12. It was Jesus' first sermon. And he spoke of this in other places. But it was Jesus' first sermon. Mark 1, 14. It was what the early church proclaimed. When you read the book of Acts, uh, it is intriguing that whenever they lead people to follow Jesus, the word repent shows up over and over. I'll give them to you. 237 to 38. These are all in Acts. <clears throat> 237 to 38, Acts 317 to 19, Acts 820 to 22, and Acts 1730. Those are the references there throughout the book of Acts. That when the New Testament church began to preach and proclaim, what did they talk about? Repent. We're gonna look what that means. Uh, Paul tells Timothy. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. Paul tells Timothy in his ministry, he's a young, young pastor, he says, you know, you, he, he said you should not be, uh, he said the, the, the pastor should be gentle and kind and those kind of things. And he says, um, uh, appealing to people that God might grant them repentance and come to their senses. That's in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. I've also been interested that the word repent or the message of repent is the recurring message in Revelation. It's found in 2 5, 2 and 3 19. So the place of it seems to be a consistent message from the Gospels, both John and Jesus, the book of Acts. 
Paul's counsel to a young pastor and the book of Revelation. So it seems pretty consistent. So I, you know, that seems to be one of the things that the scriptures seem to say that God says, this is what I expect of you in embracing your creaturely status. Okay, one other thing here I think is of some importance here, and that is repentance is seen as an elementary principle. I'll quote it to you. Go read um, uh, uh, Hebrews 6, starting verse 1, Hebrews 6, 1. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary principles and go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again a foundation of dead uh, repentance from dead works. What he said, it's an elementary principle. What does that mean? I wrote in my notes, elementary does not mean unimportant, <laughs> right? Elementary means basic. You know, the story years ago, uh, reportedly, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's ever, ever uh, uh, true, but uh, after uh, the Green Bay Packers had won the world championship in 1967 or whatever it was, Vince Lombardi shows up at the next training camp with Jerry Kramer and Bart Starr and, you know, all these great football players, and they're all sitting in the room. And, uh, and he says, now, gentlemen, we're going to begin today. Holds it up. This is a football. <laughs> I'm hoping they said that down in Texas somewhere. <laughs> that, that this is a football, and this is what we use to win. <laughs> right? Elementary. Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, elementary is repentance from dead works. If it's elementary, it means it's the beginning spot. It means it's a, it's a building block, if you will, of the Christian life. It's elementary. It doesn't mean it's unimportant. It simply means it's, it's, it's essential. Now, let's, let's, uh, let, let's go on. What B, what is repentance? Um, I've heard it's been interesting because you'll hear people talk about this word, and it, the Greek word metanoeo means to change the mind. Some people say it means turn around. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that. Epistrepho is the Greek word in the New Testament that means to turn around. Uh, and it's used in Acts some to repent. It says there that you repent and turn to God. Epistrepho. Repentance means to change the mind. About what? <laughs> See, that's the question. About what? Uh, students will say to me sometimes, I ask Jesus into my heart, and I go, as what? Finish the sentence. <laughs> right? <clears throat> Change the mind. About what? I, I would suggest to you that fundamentally, repentance means I change my mind about who's in charge. My mind changes now. Who's in charge? I'm what? The creature He's what? Creator. <clears throat> See, I'm embracing now my creaturely status. I'm saying my mind's changing here. I no longer believe that I'm the creator. Or I no longer believe I'm the one capable of calling the shots here. I've, my mind has changed now from who's in charge. It doesn't mean uh, being sad all the time. It doesn't mean making promises. It means my mind has changed. Who's in charge now? And this is what I think that is one of the missing pieces sometimes, is if we just go to belief first, and we're going to get there. If we just go to belief first, we believe that Jesus died on the cross. We do. We believe He's the Son of God. We do. But do you believe He's also the Lord of the universe? <laughs> to where I've changed my mind about who He is. Uh, let, me, let me give you a statement here. I love this statement here because I think sometimes people uh, think that that uh, repentance is all about doing when it's really about the change in the mind. Here's what Brian Chappell said. I think it's great. Repentance is less about doing and more about depending. Now I've come to the point or place in my life that I realize I'm not in charge here. I'm depending on him. Uh, it's not a bunch of doing things. It's a matter of dependence. Who's in charge here? Who's in control here? Who's calling the shots in one's life? So that repentance is this changing of the mind to say, when it comes down to it, Cliff, who's 
in charge. If I've repented, I've embraced my creaturely status, now I'd say it's the Creator. Does that make sense? It's the Creator. And, and I don't think we've sometimes talked enough with people about this. I don't think we've, we've kind of skirted it to say salvation isn't just something you get in some kind of transaction. Salvation is what occurs when you surrender to become the creature that God made you to be and you allow Him to be in charge. So, <clears throat> let's look here. What? Does that mean? You have a question? Is this, is this my, I should have done a soccer tip today. It, yeah, yes. Can you let me, I want to go to this point next and see if this answers what you're saying. He's saying what he's been taught is a change of heart, change a change of mind. Now, you know, I'm trying to deal with this linearly, like one, two, three. These steps are not all linear. There are some activities of the Holy Spirit and work of the Spirit that have to take place. Okay? So I'm going to try to try to answer that. If I can. He's saying, have you heard that too, that it's a change of heart that brings about a change of mind? I, w- I wouldn't disagree with that in principle. I just... I. I think the, the, the notion is our mind has to be satisfied that this is the position to take, that I am the creature, not the creator, that that has to occur in my judgment. So here, see, see if, I, if I don't come back on this, what causes one to repent? What causes one to repent? Well, in general, I want to take you to a particular passage, but in general, certainly the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. Remember in, first, or in, in John 16, Go back and look at it. In John 16, Jesus said, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will convict the world of sin. And I've told you, I think that term may need some attention. Elechon is the Greek word. I, 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 I'm not completely convinced. I think that what Jesus said there when he said, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will convict the world of sin. In, our, in English, at least, the word conviction has the idea of some finality. You're convicted. You did wrong. When you study that word a little more detail, that word has the same meaning of convince. Convince. He will convince the world. If their mind is convinced, their heart Change it. Here, here's a, I'll give you an example. When I was a pastor a long, long time ago, back when I was nice, uh, <clears throat> had a guy that would come, came into my church one Sunday. Wayne Ballbarker knows this guy. I, I think he's dead now, so I'm not going to call his name anyway. But anyway, not Wayne. Wayne's not dead. No. <laughs> I don't think. Is he? <laughs> um, I, sent, I, I, sent, I took him a cinnamon roll yesterday. He may be in a coma today. I did. I sent him a big cinnamon roll. said, eat it all. Um, this guy would, would regularly come after church when I would preach and say this. Boy, pastor, that was a great sermon. You stomped all over me and convicted me of what I've done wrong. You know what's interesting? He never changed. <laughs> but there was some weird setup in his brain that if God beat on him enough, he could go ahead and do it again. I said to him, I, again, I'm not a pastor, you know. <laughs> he said that to me once, and he said, boy, you were really preaching. I said, well, I hope so. You know, you know. He said, yeah, you were stomping all over me. Man, I could tell God was doing He's convicted me. And I said, you are sick. You need to see a counselor now. And I'm not kidding. That's nuts. That's crazy. That's that idea of God going to beat you up really good and then you feel better. Now you can go back and do some more sinning. Right? That's not what the Holy Spirit does. He convinces you. You know what, Cliff? This isn't right. You, sh- you shouldn't be doing this. This isn't going to work for you. Listen, I'm telling you, I know people, I- I'm convinced of this. I know people that are convicted about something, but they're not convinced. They feel bad about it. They like to feel bad about it. It makes them feel like they've paid for something or they've atoned some way for their sin. But they're not convinced. Repentance occurs when we are convinced by the Holy Spirit. 
to say, this is wrong, Cliff. This is not the way I created you. Listen, if you get a hold of that, you pray to God and say, God, don't convict me. Don't beat me up. Don't let my church background, you know, beat the living daylights out of me. Convince me that this is wrong. So how does one repent or what causes one? First of all, it's the work of the Spirit to convince us. And I've gone to God before. And I've just said, look, I don't think I'm convinced. I'm not arguing with you about it. I'm not really fighting with you about it. But I know there's something in my heart and soul that isn't convinced here because I keep going back to this. You ever had that happen? You're not convinced. It's not, it's not you got to set up more disciplines and set up more barriers and walls for your life. You need to be convinced. That's the work of the Spirit. Not to beat you up. Not to make you feel bad. Not to shame you. Convince you. Now the word comes out of court because whenever somebody finally does get convicted, it's because the jury got what? Convinced. That's the struggle. Yes. Yeah, Jesus is saying, I've got a lot more stuff to help you with. That's right. So that, okay, let me, let me, let me give you another one here. Uh, go to Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> My Bible automatically opens to Romans. It's 1070. I love this passage. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul is uh, getting after some really self-righteous people. And those are the hardest ones to deal with, by the way. You know, really good, moral, self-righteous people. And he says here in verse, <clears throat> I'm going to start at verse 3. Chapter 2. But do you suppose this, old man, that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, that you yourself will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repent. What, what, what is it that leads people to repent? God's kindness. Not His thundering judgment. Not His convicting. His kind convincing. Come on, Cliff. This isn't right. And I, in my heart and soul, say, you know what? I, I'm the creature. I'm going to embrace my creaturely status here. I'm going to say, you know what? You're right. And I'm convinced. I just want to say again, if you're struggling with something, that you seem, I can't seem to get over this. Ask the Holy Spirit to convince you. To convince you that He knows what's right. That He knows what you ought to be doing. That he knows what you shouldn't do. Ask him. Just say, Spirit of God, your job is to convince me of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Convince me. Not, not in an arrogant, combative way, but saying, I need you to convince me. Because it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Where do we get the idea you scare people to death? You frighten them. I want to tell you again, I've said this several times. <clears throat> people that turn to Jesus out of fear of hell, our promise of reward, are still selfishly motivated. People that respond to Jesus out of fear of hell, our promise of reward are still locked in to selfishness. I don't want to get hurt. I want to get rewarded. The real issue here is to be convinced to say, I want to live a life of gratitude for this God that gave so much for me. You know, I, I got a cousin named Mark. He's dead. He died a few years ago of a heart, heart problem. 
And Mark, I think I've told you all about him. Maybe some of you heard that Mark uh, was the kind of guy that I just didn't like to be around. He was vulgar, crude, and big, which scared me. <laughs> scared me a little bit. <clears throat> uh, strong as an ox. I'm not kidding. We moved here in Oklahoma City. I had to get all this stuff out of my house, and I said, well, let's go get the refrigerator. Mark is walking out with it like this. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I had a refrigerator. Where do you want this? Wherever you want to put it, brother. <laughs> you can drop it on me if you want to. I, you know what? But I'm not messing with you. Mark <clears throat> grew up in a Christian home, and whatever, how the wires got crossed up or whatever. I said, <clears throat> Mark <clears throat> was mean and hateful. He, uh, he got busted out of the military for getting everybody to smoke dope. He woke up in a bass boat one night on Cave Run Lake in Kentucky and had stolen five bass boats and didn't know how he did it. <laughs> he grabbed a guy one time after a football game in Montgomery County and said, I want your watch and your wallet. If you don't give it to me, I'll kill you. And he meant it. He's a monster. He was a maniac. Because Mark thought that every time that he did something wrong, instead of convincing him, God would convict him. And I ask him this question. This is a, this is a terrible question. I'm, I'm being recorded. And the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across these community churches, elders, or leadership. I said this to him one time. He had this conviction convincing so goofed up. I said this. Answer this question for just, just this. Before you got this straightened out, did you have more peace serving the devil than you did Jesus? He said, oh, no question. Every time I tried to serve Jesus... And I failed, I felt condemned, I felt convicted, I felt shame, I felt I was a piece of rotten garbage. So people talk about the peace and love and joy of Jesus. You didn't know anything of that, did you? Nope. The devil was easier on you than Jesus. Think about that just for a minute. The devil gave him more peace than this Jesus thing that he was in. So Mark, <clears throat> I, I just I don't like to be around him. Didn't want to be around him. Didn't be around him. That's probably incorrect English there, Luann, but didn't, didn't be around him. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> Mark finally came to faith. Uh, and he came to go to college here. <clears throat> and we got to spend a lot of time in it. You, you, you know what happened? One, one day, <clears throat> I mean, he's a maniac in the community. The only reason he's not in jail because his wife's Father is a big leader in the community. That's it. You know. And uh, we lived in Kentucky for a while, you know, three million people, four last names. And, you know, <laughs> sorry, if you're from Kentucky, please. You from Kentucky? <laughs> Anybody? I live there. <clears throat> a lot of family, a lot of family. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> Mark got married to a wonderful gal. She was nuts for marrying, but she, she's a wonderful gal. They had a child. He got a little farm, had a four-wheeler, and uh, said he walked out on his back porch one day. Saw his little baby girl, his wife, this beautiful spread he had. He always wanted to have a little farm. And he said the kindness of God caused him to repent right there. He said, God, if you've been this good to me, I'll give you my life. We tried to scare him into heaven. We tried to manipulate him every way we can. Some of you guys know him, Dave and Eden. Y'all remember Mark? One of the kindest, sweetest guys you'd ever meet in your life. Underneath all that rage and, 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 and meanness and strength, was a heart that had been crushed by conviction. Crushed by it. That was awakened. One reason. Mark had been in some hellfire and damnation services. He'd been to youth rallies when he had bonfires, you know, to illustrate hell. That always works. Burn your eyebrows off, you know, before. <laughs> Real good visual aid. So that. I mean, he had all that. He, he, knew, he knew all the verses and all the scriptures. Dad was a pastor. But his heart had been crushed by conviction 
by a God that shamed him, made him afraid instead of saying, Mark, 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 Mark. It's not the way to live. It's not the way to live. I died for something better than this. I died for something more meaningful than this. You're a creature. You've got to give up thinking you're God. You're not smart enough for this. You don't know enough. You don't have enough experience. I know you don't change your mind. And he did. The kindness of God. Is God kind to you? Think when you when you think about all He's done and how He's provided, that changes your mind, Jerry. Or reward, right? I think so, and I think that's where, in my judgment, this is my you know opinion again. That's where the discipleship piece has to get involved, to get this cleared out. I believe that a lot of us came in with lots less motives than to give honor and glory to God, and he accepted us. Right. No. I, yeah, let, me, let me make that distinction because I, I'm not saying it made it null void. I'll tell you what I do think it does. I think it warps any Christian discipleship in the future. If it doesn't get straightened out, if it doesn't become now where Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Now I'm living for the glory of God, not to save my hide or not to get some great reward. Because when we come back to this, when those rewards don't come, what do people do? I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about they want rewards now. They're out. I'm out. Why? Because that, this, this didn't work out. This, I, I, didn't, I didn't sign for this. I signed up for rewards and comfort and peace and more money. But you're right. I, I, I don't want to say that a person that comes in like that is automatically wrong. I'm saying this. If people don't get a hold of that in their discipleship or in their growth, I think they're headed for a very heavy sled. Yes. For the recording, let me say, because she's saying here, because of the body of Christ, the kindness of God's people, the kindness of people in the church, that that's been part of that healing process to bring us through this. Yeah, this is, this is, a, this is, a, this is some deep water here. Because we're, we're saying this idea of this repentance that comes, maybe, I don't want to be too judgmental, and i got to stop, you got to go to church. I don't want to be too judgmental, but as I've reflected over the years in my own preaching and teaching, God used it. But I think sometimes go back to say, man, what problems did I create for people? What problems did I create for people that now have to get unwound? I'm thankful we have a place to get it unwound. <laughs> we can study. We can grow. So here, here's why I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go past this. There's some other things on your handout for you that have to have all the blanks filled in. We have some counseling for you later this afternoon. Uh, <clears throat> I want to ask you, though, on some application here, on the very, on the very bottom here, here here's, what I, here, here's what I'm going to ask you to do here. Real quick. I got this. What if this week you chose one action or one response or one attitude that's an expression of your embracing your creaturely status in repentance? What, what if... What if you decided, I, I'm going to embrace this creaturely status. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to allow this kind of repentance where I've changed my mind about who's in charge. Is there an attitude or an action or, a, or, or, or an expression here for you to say, this week, 
Just play with this. Practice this. Say, there's no, no sense in us talking about this if this doesn't make it into our daily lives. To say, I'm going to embrace... I'm going to embrace my creaturely status in that in my prayer life this week, I'm going to tell God what I need, but I'm also going to sit there and listen. I'm not going to spend the whole time telling him what to do. I'm going to spend some time listening. Okay. Two minutes, whatever, whatever, whatever. Or, or you know what? I, I, I'm going to spend this week. I'm going to let somebody in traffic. Oh, Jesus help me. But <clears throat> <clears throat> No, I'm saying I'm not in charge here. I'm not in The world doesn't have to run on my time clock. That's where I get in trouble. Not with traffic. My time clock. I'm a very good driver. I'm a very good driver. Rain man. Anyway, uh, the, uh, that, 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 I know. I, I got to stop or I'm going to get in more trouble. But, but the idea here is to say, I'm not, I'm not in control of the universe. It doesn't have to run on my time schedule. Let somebody in traffic, don't get bent out of shape when somebody comes into you and needs some help here. It's not on your schedule. But, but embrace your creaturely status. That maybe God is doing something here that you don't know about. And it's not on your schedule. And God didn't approve it, didn't, didn't come to you to get it approved. But something this week. Embrace. This is what God expects of you. This is what God expects of me. Embrace your creaturely status. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. There are things in life that make us do this. Serious illness forces us to embrace our creaturely status. Loss of a job. <clears throat> family disruption. But Lord, we're, we're people here today who have followers of you, Jesus, that we want to embrace our creaturely status before all that. Or maybe in all that. Would you help us this week? Change our minds. Convince us that you are the one we look to. In Jesus' strong name, amen.